Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. This is the third Sunday that we've been looking at uh, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Um, John, the apostle, received supernatural vision from the Lord Jesus, and he had a personal address that was sent to the pastors of these seven churches, we believe to be read to the entire congregation. So when we started, we first looked at the church at Ephesus. This was the church with a cold heart. And they were very busy. They were doing ministry. In fact, their uh, doctrine was very orthodox and sound, but uh, they had failed to fan that flame of love for the Lord, and they were doing their work out of duty rather than passion. The Lord rebuked them for that, called them to repentance. Then last week we looked at the church at Smyrna, which was the suffering church. There was no rebuke for the church at Smyrna, only a prophecy that uh, there were still hard times ahead, harder than they'd experienced up until that point. But they were given the promise of eternal life and that victory crown if they would endure it to the end. And we come today to the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum was uh, located about 100 miles north of the city of Ephesus. Unlike the first two churches, their cities were not located on natural harbors. It was uh, 15 to 20 miles inland. And it was not so much a center of commerce as a center of learning and academia. One of the world's largest libraries was located in Pergamon. It had over 200,000 volumes. It was also a center of pagan worship. Almost every pagan god you can imagine had a beautiful temple erected there on uh, that mountain from which Pergamum overlooked the countryside. And it was also uh, a center of medicine. One of those wicked gods was the, the, the god of healing. And so people would come far and wide to Pergamum to come to this temple of this idol and to have snakes placed upon them. We still have a snake as a symbol of medicine today, don't we? And it's taken all the way back to those um, days in, ancient, in the ancient world. So this was the setting in which God in his sovereignty placed a church. When I think of these churches, I, I don't think about mega churches. I don't think about grand buildings. I think about a, a little fortress, a little outpost of light amidst great darkness. And so this is what we have. We come today to the 12th verse of the second chapter of Revelation. This is the Lord Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. May the Lord add his blessing, the hearing and reading of his word. Now, we can learn from other people, can't we? We can learn from positive examples. We can learn from negative examples. I encourage my children to read Christian biography, and we bring those books into our homes at their reading level, and, and we teach them of some of the great men and women of the faith and encourage them to model and emulate those people. But on the other hand, some of the greatest lessons I've learned in life were from the negative example of people. I don't want to be like that person. And so the Bible does that. It holds up some people who uh, were great in their faith and says, be like this. And on the other hand, it gives us some negative examples of people who are faithless. And the Lord says, avoid that. But then there are some who there's a mixture of positive and negative. And, and we've said that that's true of most people, isn't there? That, that there are things that uh, we can find in people that are positive and we need to celebrate those things. But on the other hand, for all of us really who are Christians, this life is difficult and it's a battle and we're a work in progress. We're on a path of sanctification, but we're not there yet. And so there's things that we need to work on. And so this was certainly the case with the church at Pergamum. And so let's learn from both positive and the negative things that the Lord Jesus said about the church at Pergamum. Let's go back to verse 12. It says to the angel of the church, remember that's the pastor in Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Remember in each of these letters, there's a pattern that has emerged. First of all, the Lord identifies himself with one of those phrases or titles that he shows us in chapter one. And then there is a word of commendation, usually. I, and he begins by saying, I know some things about you. It's a reminder of the Lord's omniscience. But, but it's more than a head knowledge. It's an intimacy that he has with them that he doesn't have with any group in the world except his church. He knows them experientially. And then he has usually a mixture of commendation and praise. And then he has a command to them. And finally, he gives them a promise, which usually has to do with eternal life in heaven. And we see that pattern emerge right away here in the letter to the church at Pergamum. He identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the Savior's sword. The Lord Jesus identifies himself. And this is not a friendly greeting. Now you go back and read uh, the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches. He often begins by saying, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think of the Lord Jesus, we think of peace, don't we? We think of that humble servant. But remember the book of Revelation is just that. It, it is to reveal something. And what is revealed in the book of Revelation is the real Jesus. That he is king and Lord and judge and that's how he identifies himself. When he speaks of the one who holds the two-edged sword, he's speaking of his authority to judge. Now in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is talking about the whole armor of God, he says the only offensive weapon that we've been granted is the sword of the spirit, which is what? It's the word of God. Book of Hebrews, the scripture says that the word of God is acting alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And what does it do? It makes distinctions. It divides, it judges. And here is the Lord Jesus saying, I'm coming to make distinctions and I'm coming 
to judge, and he's judging the church and its members. Now, later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see Jesus coming back to earth, riding that white charger, not a foal of a donkey. He's no longer the suffering servant, is he? He is the righteous Lord. He holds that office of prophet and priest and king. And he's imaged there as having a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. I don't think we're to take from that uh, uh, literally that, that Jesus has this big sword coming from his mouth. I think the symbolism there is that he's coming to judge. When he came the first time, he says, I come to seek and to save those who are lost. But when he comes again, he comes to judge. So that, that is the Savior's sword. Let's read on. He says, I know, verse 13, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Where Satan dwells. This is Satan's city. Now, there are a lot of wicked places in the world during the time that John lived, just as there are many wicked places today. But all of us have certain cities in which we associate with particular sins, don't we? Well, the Lord Jesus says that Pergamum is the capital city of Satan. There's a number of theories why he would make such a claim. Um, one theory is taken from archaeology. They have discovered uh, up on the mountainside there in that ancient city of Pergamum, a temple to Zeus, the god of war. And it is built in a horseshoe shape with colonnades all around it. And uh, it looks sort of like a chair from a distance. And some have said, well, G Jesus is taking off on that architecture, and he's saying that's the throne of, of Satan, this temple of Zeus. Well, that may have some uh, reliability. Uh, on the other hand, we do know that Pergamum, for 250 years leading up to the writing of this letter, was the capital of Asia. Now, again, when you and I think of Asia, I do. I think of the Far East. I think of China and Japan, Vietnam, and so forth. But from a Roman perspective, Asia was this uh, piece of land today that we would call modern-day Turkey. And all these seven churches were located roughly in that same geographical area on or just off of the Aegean Sea. And so um, the capital of that province forever was Pergamum. And so, of course, the Roman Empire, uh, behind the scenes, we've said, is Satan. He is the god of this world. And so maybe Jesus was saying, because this is the capital city of Rome, it's the capital city of, of Satan. And some say, well, this is literal, that Satan had literally set up his residence in the city of Pergamum. Now, there's some evidence in the Bible that there are demonic forces who are assigned geographical regions. We saw that in the book of Daniel, didn't we? The prince of Babylon that the, the angel had to contend with. Well, all these things may be valid, but, but I think the overarching point is this. This was an exceptionally wicked city. When Jesus would say of your city, it's the capital city of Satan, things were pretty bad, weren't they? I can remember when I was a very young man growing up in the rural south, I always wanted to see some of these cities that I only saw on television. I didn't get to travel very much as a young man. So, so when I graduated college, I determined I was going to, to go coast to coast and visit all these places. So uh, right out of college, I saved up some money. I bought a used car. And the second the semester was over, I and my buddies started out for the West Coast. And we drove through the night and we finally made it to San Francisco, California. And the first thing we did one Saturday evening is drive right down the middle of uh, San Francisco 
And you know what? This old country boy had his eyes wide open to some things he'd never seen before. And I thought I, I was unaware that people live like this. But you know, um, the next morning, Sunday morning, we found a Baptist church to go to. And you know what we found? We found well, some of the finest Christians we've ever met. And for years, we kept going back there. I would preach, and my buddies had a trio, and we would sing there, and we made great friends. And, and one of the friends we made there was a pastor by the name of Richard Neely. I suspect he's with the Lord. This was 25 years ago. But he moved to San Francisco in the 1950s, and he planted his life there. And for over 40 years, he preached faithfully to that little congregation. And I'm reminded of them every time I read this passage. Right in a place that we would call the capital city of sin, there's God's people, isn't there? And they were being faithful. And they were um, preaching the truth. And that leads us to our third point, verse 13. They, they had steadfast service. Jesus begins with a commendation to them. He tells them what they're doing well. He says, I know where you dwell. He says, look, don't, don't think I've forgotten about you. I, I know how hard it is where you are. I, I know that I've established you and I've called you to live and minister in one of the most difficult places on planet Earth. And look, you're holding fast by my name. That is, they had not ultimately rejected the faith. They were still meeting together. They were still ministering. They were still calling themselves Christians. And you haven't denied my faith even in the days of Antipas. Now, who's Antipas? Well, we don't know from the Bible, but secular history and tradition tells us that at one time Antipas was the pastor, the bishop there in Pergamum, and that he was arrested for his faith. Jesus calls him here, my witness. And do you know what the Greek word for witness is? It's martyr. And that's where we get that word. A witness, a martyr was just someone who told the truth about Jesus. But of course, during times of persecution, telling the truth about Jesus can get you killed. And that's exactly what happened to Antipas. Secular history tells us that he was placed in one of these bronze bull idols. It was this great big thing that was hollow. Somehow they opened it and put him inside and lit a fire underneath it and roasted Antipas alive. And yet he would not recant his faith. Jesus is saying, I, I saw that. There were some who were killed among you where Satan dwells, but you held tight to the word of God. That's in the past. He's probably talking about their parents. And now it's their turn to hold fast. And beginning in verse 14, he, he uses that word that can cause us trouble sometimes. What is it? But. Even though in the past you held firm and even your pastor would not recant under threat of death, I have a few things against you. Now notice that the first time we saw that phrase was to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you. I have one thing against you, church at Ephesus. And what was it? That you've left your first love. But now here we are, the church at uh, Pergamum. He says, I have a few things, plural, against you. And he begins by saying, because you have there, that is in your church, some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now these are scolding words. Again, here's a mixture of, of rebuke. After the commendation comes the rebuke. Now, um, what in the world does it mean to follow the teachings of Balaam? Well, you have to know your Old Testament. 
That's why we study the Old Testament. Remember the scripture says these things were written down for our benefit, both the positive and the negative. So you had to go back to the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 22 through chapter 25, I believe, and we read the story of Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? Balaam was that guy who talked to his donkey and his donkey talked to him. But before that, he was a prophet. He heard from God, but he sought to monetize that. He says, I, I've got this gift of prophecy. Let's see how I can use that for my personal enrichment. And so he goes to the enemies of the Lord, the Moabites, and the king, Balak, who's mentioned here, says, I want you to pronounce a curse upon Israel. And he wanted to do that because he was going to make him fabulously wealthy. But you know what? God would not allow it. Three different times he tried to pronounce this curse, but all that would come out of his mouth were blessings. And it made Balak, the king of Moab, furious. So because he couldn't use his prophetic gift to curse Israel, you know what he did? In his flesh, he advised the king of Moab, here's what you do. Since we can't curse them, let's invite them to your idol feast where there's sexual immorality and have your most beautiful women seduce them. And that's exactly what happened. And that apparently is what it means to teach the doctrine of Balaam. It's to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Which, by the way, those two things were part and parcel of the pagan worship that was going all around them in the city of Pergamum. So, so I deduced from that, here's what was happening. You had some members of the church at Pergamum who were trying to live in both worlds. On one hand, they were saying, we hold fast to the gospel. And they were meeting on Sunday, the Lord's Day. But during the week, they were lowering their standards and they were going to these pagan rituals and participating in the licentiousness that went on there in the name of religion. And they were eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now we know that that meat is just meat. Paul said that, right? It's nothing. But he said, if it offends my brother to eat this meat, I won't do it. In fact, in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, the advice that was given from that council was to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. But I think the point is this, where do you find meat sacrificed to idols? That's at these pagan orgies. And apparently you had people that were trying to have it both ways. They were trying to live in both worlds. They were worldly, in other words. That, that's a term we used to use in church, isn't it? It's a good word. It means that we are like the world. And that's always a negative thing because Jesus calls us to a fine line of demarcation. He said, you either love me or you hate me. You're for me or against me. You can't commerce in the world and love the things of the world and, and be devoted to me. And that was the problem. Well, that was just the first problem. Verse 15, they had another problem. It says, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we were introduced to the Nicolaitans uh, in the letter to the church at, at Ephesus. He says that you reject, he commended the church at Ephesus because they rejected the teachings of Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? A lot of theories about that. Uh, one that's very popular, and I think it may be right, is that, uh, remember, among the deacons that were chosen in the book of Acts, one was named Nicholas. And uh, tradition, and really history, tells us that he apostatized from the faith. And he began trying to lead Christians astray, and the way he did that was once again through licentiousness and sexual immorality. So you have two different false teachers and sects, S-E-C-T-S, 
that had infiltrated the church at Pergamum and their purity was threatened. But here's the real problem. No one was doing anything about it. They were turning a blind eye to the false doctrine and the immorality that had infiltrated the church. In other words, they had decided after I think they had seen Brother Antipas roasted like a turkey, we don't want to go that way, so we're going to go along and get along. And they began lowering their standard, and Jesus took note of it, and he says, you better repent. Turn, turn back one leaf of your Bible, and you'll come to the book of Jude. Jude was one of the brothers of the Lord Jesus, and he wrote this little epistle primarily to caution the first century church against compromise when it came to false teachers. Now look at the first three or four verses there, the book of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now that is a friendly greeting. He's addressing Christians. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. But now he gets into what he really wants to say. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, Lord, I want to write you a beautiful letter about heaven and let us celebrate the glory of Christ. He says, while I was endeavoring to do that, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, what is the faith? Now, we think about faith as belief. Paul said salvation is by grace through what? Faith. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, that's one way we use the word faith in the New Testament. The other way, when we use that definite article, the, in front of it, we're talking about the content of the gospel. When I say our church needs to hold tightly to the faith, it means all those things that Jesus taught us, all the things that the apostles taught us that were taught them through Jesus. And he says, Jude does, that we've got to earnestly, what's the word earnest? It means with seriousness and effort, contend. It means to wrestle, to labor, to, to fight. That is, in every epoch of history and in every church, there's a battle going on for truth. And if we are lackadaisical, and if we don't hold tightly, if we don't remind our children, we're always one generation from losing truth, aren't we? And apparently this was the temptation that they were facing at the church at Pergamum. Antipas and his generation had held tightly to the faith, but as the pressure had come from the world, there were those in the church that say, look, we don't have to be fanatical about this thing. We can ease off some things we teach here. We can adopt our philosophy and doctrine to the age in which we live, and, and we can all get along and, and survive and be happy. Well, what does Jesus have to say about that? Verse 16, because you've lowered your standard, here's what he calls them to, therefore repent. Repent means to turn around and go the opposite direction. That is to return to those things you were once doing. And here's the thread or the prophecy or else, that is if you don't repent, I'm coming to you quickly. There's a sense of urgency and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that is popular in our culture, who, who goes around humming to himself and wouldn't harm a flea. He says, if you don't repent, I'm coming to make war against those in the church that have lowered and capitulated to the culture. That is, I'm going to bring them judgment with my word. 
Now, those are serious words. Not just scolding words. Those are serious words and those are deadly words. But as always, he's a God of mercy, isn't he? He gives them the hope of a better way and a better day. Look at verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now when Jesus walked this world, he talked about the kingdom of God being like a field in which there were wheat and tares. The wheat being true Christians, the tares being those who were pretending to be Christians. And he said, let them grow up together. And he's the one who's going to ultimately judge in the end, isn't he? Well, he's talking about that judgment that he's going to do. He's not saying everybody in the church has capitulated and lowered their standards. He's not saying that all of them face the judgment of God, but he's saying he that has an ear, let him hear to him who overcomes. That's one whose faith remains until the end. He offers three promises. Look at him. He says, first, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Now, what is the hidden manna? When we think about the manna, we think about the wilderness experience of those who Moses led out of Egyptian captivity, which, by the way, is a foreshadowing and a metaphor of spiritual salvation. The Lord brings us out of slavery to sin, provides for us. But the manna was how he fed them. The Lord fed them out in the wilderness. They didn't have time to cultivate crops. There wasn't enough wildlife to sustain two million people. And so he would every morning shower down this little wafers and they would gather it enough for that day and they would eat it. In fact, they were instructed to gather some of it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant so that future generations could remember. So that's how he sustained their physical life. And when Jesus was teaching and preaching there in uh, Judea, he said of himself, I am the bread of life. See, that manna in the wilderness went bad, didn't it? He tried to store it. Um, it was temporary. You would eat it and you'd be hungry again the next day. But he offers to all who would partake of him spiritual life and sustenance what he's offering to the church, he says, if you will stick with me, if you'll hold fast to the end, I'll give you myself. Not only will I sustain you spiritually through this life, I will sustain you and you'll have intimacy with me throughout eternity. So I'll give you some of that manna, spiritual manna. Second thing he says, I will give you a white stone. Now what in the world is this white stone? Well, remember I told you that these ancient cities all loved athletic contests. Almost all of them had a great stadium. And uh, several times a year they would gather for these um, events and they would give those laurels, those trophies, those crowns to the victor. But the other thing that was given to these athletic victors was a white stone. And it was their hall pass. It was their entrance into the feast that the emperor was going to throw in their honor after the games were over. And if you had that white stone, it meant that you had won the battle or won the contest and you were granted entry into the feast. Now, you don't have to be a great theologian to figure out what that's talking about, right? The Bible says that uh, we are one day God's people from every tribe and tongue and people group, north, east, 
west and south, going to gather at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And our entrance into heaven is going to be that white stone, not that we earned it, but that was earned by the Lord Jesus who gave it to us, and we have safe passage not only into that feast, but to all of eternity and all the glories of heaven. He's saying, I know it's hard now. You got to earnestly contend for the faith, but one day all this struggle is going to be behind you, and I am going to grant you this white stone, and they're going to be a part of the victory celebration. There's a third thing he says here, and I'm going to write a new name on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The book of Isaiah says that one day we're going to receive new names, those who are faithful to the Lord. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. I think it's individual. I think each individual is going to be given by the Lord a new name for all of eternity, one that is based upon our intimacy and our closeness with Jesus Christ, that, that only he has the authority to grant because we are his children, and he gives us this new name, and he inscribes it on that stone. Can you imagine that we're going to grant, be granted entrance into heaven? And it's not just this um, generic sense in which everyone and all the churches are going to grant entrance into heaven. There, there is a general and corporate sense. But do you sense the intimacy, the personal nature of this relationship that we have with Jesus is that he knows us by name. He says in the New Testament that he knows how many hairs are on our head. And, and he says that to encourage us to pray because we're not some faceless part of a, a, a blob when it comes to God's relationship to his church. He knows each one of us intimately. I'm, I'm thinking of John chapter 10 where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd and, and what signifies a good shepherd. He knows every sheep individually. They know his voice and he knows their they know their master and he knows them. And if one of them's lost, he'll leave the 99 and pursue the one that is lost. And here's Jesus speaking of that closeness and intimacy that he makes available to all who will be faithful unto the end. This is the doctrine of perseverance, friends. Now let's make uh, some application in a few minutes we have left here. As we look back at church history in the past and even the recent past, there seems to be two extremes that the church can go to when it's faced with pressure from the outside world. One is legalism. That is, we isolate ourselves, huddle up against the world. We fail to be salt and light. We just put up a 12-foot fence around the church and we isolate ourselves and we become legalistic. That is to go beyond what the Bible says when it comes to morality. And I uh, received a letter about a year, about the email I'm sure these days, um, in which a pastor said the biggest threat facing the church today is legalism. And I looked at the, the date signature on that email because that might have been true 50 years ago but it hasn't been true in the evangelical world a long time that the biggest issue we face is legalism. I think the biggest issue the church writ large today is facing is the other end of the continuum, which is license, which is compromise with the world. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, passed away recently, and he, asked, he was asked shortly before his death, 
what's the biggest challenge facing the world. He says it's the lack of teaching in the church on personal holiness. That because the world has become so pagan, many churches and many pastors have just given up the fight and said, if you can't lick them, join them. And so I want to be very specific today. Three areas of compromise that I see in the evangelical church writ large that our church needs to be very careful to avoid or will become part of the problem. Number one is money. Number two is power. And number three is sexuality. That's true of individual relationships. That's true of churches. When I think of marital problems in our church and in our city, those three things are almost always the common denominator. Money, authority, or power, and, and sexuality. And if we look at what a lost and dying world teaches and believes and values in those three areas, it'll become crystal clear that there is a big distinction in what the Bible teaches about that and what is popular in our world. I think that's the problem with Antipas. Do you know what the word Antipas, this guy that was roasted in, in that bronze bull, you know what his name means? It means against everything. Antipas, against everything. Now you know some people like that, right? No matter what you vote on, there's bound to be one no vote. Well, that's not what it means. Think about it. To be against everything means to run against the grain. Everything in the culture was going towards paganism and materialism and licentiousness. And Antipas says, I'm going the opposite direction. Do you know what happens when you go cross the grain against the world? People don't like it. Billy Sunday was a famous evangelist back many years ago in this country. And he used to preach hell hot. He preached against sin. He preached God's coming judgment. And there was a lady that came up to him after the service one evening and says, Brother Billy, you need to cool it. You're rubbing the cat the wrong way. As you, you make people upset with all this talk about sin and hell. You know what Billy Sunday said? He said, if the cat would turn around, he'd be going the right way. And that's what the church is called to do, not to run with the culture, but to go cross grains against the culture, to be distinct and to be different. And I see it in our churches today, that there are three ways in which we've compromised. I see it in our worship in the evangelical church. We've said, uh, if, if they won't like our worship, let's make our worship like theirs, like their music. And, and let's make the style something they, they wanna hear. I met a pastor some years ago in seminary who was part of a great mega church and that church was founded on a survey. They sent out a survey into the community and said, what would you like to hear at church? And then they collected that survey and they designed their services around what the lost community wanted to hear. And he was brought to the seminary to lecture to teach us how to do that. And so at the end he had time to question and I said, do you really think that's biblical? He said, oh yes. He says, uh, our task is to not confront and not to drive anyone away or to offend anyone. He says, I'll give you an example. We have a man who's been coming to our church for seven years every Sunday, and he's a self-avowed atheist. I said, why does he come? He says, he likes the music. And I had to be very careful because this was my teacher and I was in my twenties. But I said, brother, you are celebrating the fact that a lost person can sit in your congregation for seven years and never be offended by the gospel. Look, we should never offend by our demeanor or our lack of love, but the gospel is offensive 
when you tell the truth in full dosage that God is holy and that he holds you accountable and that you're a sinner bound for hell, lest you repent, not everyone's going to like it. And they're not going to stay around for seven years, I can promise you. They're either going to repent or they're going to hate you. We've watered down our worship. We've watered down our message. So many churches, there's, there's no mention any longer of sin or judgment or hell. I heard Dr. Al Mohler some years ago describing the state of preaching in our evangelical churches. And he traveled coast to coast, listened to, to sermons. He says, here's my assessment of it. I've seen so many pastors come dangerously close to making a biblical point and swerve at the last second to avoid contact. And that describes very aptly what is called biblical preaching these days. But then there's a third thing. I think this is what was happening in Pergamum. There's the lowering of the standard of church membership. In the Bible, they knew who was in the flock and, and who wasn't. They had lists and they have standards. And what we've seen in this movement today is we don't want to frighten anyone off so we don't hold up any standard of truth and we don't hold them accountable and then we don't ask them to do or believe anything. In fact, there's a very popular phrase in the church planting world and that is that you can come and belong before joining. That is, you can enter into everything that a member does. You don't even have to believe the gospel. Friends, that is a travesty. That's how you invite Balaam and the Nicolaitans into your church. Last year, your pastors and your deacons worked hard to revise our church covenant, and we determined we're going to use it and make it more visible. But you know what? When we hold to these things, not just have them on a piece of paper on the website hidden away somewhere, when we talk about them and we use them as a standard of accountability, not everyone's going to like it. In fact, we may run the risk of being canceled in our world today. You know what that is, right? Where if someone holds a particular position that is unpopular in the world, we'll ruin their lives. We'll make it impossible for them to make a living. We'll try to find some dirt on them and destroy their life and ministry. Listen to what our church says about purity, for example, which was what was going wrong in the church at Pergamum. We strive towards moral purity by combining all sexual relations to biblical marriage and avoiding all immorality such as lustful thoughts, pornography, homosexual relations, and illicit sexual activities. That's a clear line of distinction. This is what it says about family. The church family consists of regenerate members, both married and single. We affirm that God's plan for the family is that marriage is exclusively a relationship between one man and one woman that God designed to last for a lifetime. And friends, God forbid that we ever lower that standard. God forbid that we ever capitulate to the society because of the pressure coming from the outside to go along so you can get along. And friends, I'm here to tell you, if we continue to hold to these standards, we're going to suffer for it in this culture in days ahead. But you know what? Here's the sweet promise of the Lord Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. He'll sustain us with himself. We'll have intimacy with him for all of eternity. He'll give us the white stone that victors pass into glory and he'll give us a new name that only he can give and we'll share glory in heaven with him 
forever. What's it going to be? Are we going to go along to get along? Or are we going to hold to the truth for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? May the Lord help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we can learn from both the positive and the negative examples from Scripture. And Father, here at the church at Pergamon, we have a little bit of both. On one hand, historically, they had held tight to the gospel. Some of them had even been willing to go to uh, suffer terrible, painful deaths for the sake of Jesus. And yet as time went on, Lord, maybe they began to get tired of the fight and they began to lower their standards. They began to allow doctrine that uh, was antithetical to the truth. They began to allow behavior, Father, that would not have been accepted in the previous generation. Father, you call them on it. You tell them if they don't repent, there's coming a judgment. Father, we know you're gracious. It's not your desire that any should perish. It's your desire that we would repent and that we would return to that old zeal. And Father, that we would uh, repair the walls if they've been broken down and that we'd put up clear distinctions between ourselves and a lost and, and dying world. Not because we hate them, but because we love them. Because as Jesus said, if salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out. Father, we can't help the world if we're just like the world. So Father, in our worship, in our message, in our lifestyle, in our church membership covenant, Lord, help us to hold tightly to the things of God and reject the things of the world. For your sake and your good name, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.